My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm George Jarrett. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, George and I are the lead investigators for AMU's cold case investigative team. This season, we're working to break the case for the family of Linda Malcolm. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. She wasn't very happy that day. She was just like staring straight out there. She was there, but she wasn't there. She was antsy and no place to go, but one to go. But there is one thing that she told us she was doing when she'd go to the Blue Goose. She would go park over in the Washington State Ferry parking lot. But she would park over there so she felt safe that Keith wouldn't find her. Don told me two to four days before her murder, he came over to the Golden Grill and she was outside and she was upset. And it stuck out to him because he's like, she was never upset. She was always happy-go-lucky. But she was upset. Uh, something to do with money. And one other thing, I heard this from two separate people. Two different people told me that those charges got dropped because she agreed to be involved in a sting operation that took down a police officer who went to prison for a year. We wondered how she got out of all that. She never did tell us. I always wondered if she didn't trade something for something, you know, to get out of those drug charges. Accessing the victim's autopsy and conducting an in-depth analysis of those injuries is a key step in every case we take on. George's friend and knife expert, Jeff Schaefer, had greatly assisted us on our previous investigation. So we got on a call with him again to discuss the potential murder weapon used against Linda and what clues her injuries could provide about her killer. Hey, George. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Hey, Jen. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Jeff, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us about Linda's case. It's my pleasure. So the three of us have been communicating via email the last couple weeks about Linda's case. Jeff, we've shared the autopsy report with you, some photos of specific wounds that Linda incurred during this attack. And so obviously one of the big things that we want to chat with you about today is your thoughts on the type of weapon that was used against her. So when you first saw the photos and read the autopsy report, what were your initial thoughts? Well, my initial thoughts were that the weapon that was used wasn't anything super special. I think it was probably something like a kitchen knife of some sort. And what led you to think that? It has a very thin blade. You can tell that in one of the wounds where you can see the underlying muscle tissue and the skin has been pulled back by the fire. Okay, And in a previous case that you helped us on, you felt that the knife used in that particular case was double-edged, meaning that both sides of the blade were sharpened. Is that what you think about this knife? No, I think this knife with a single-edged knife, the stab wounds that there were, they looked like they only had one sharp edge. Okay, so it's safe probably to say that whatever knife used against Linda just had this single-sided blade, just one side that was sharpened? Correct. Okay. And Jeff, when you're talking about this type of knife, is it possible that the knife blade broke or anything like that? It is possible. 
but a lot of the cheaper kitchen knives, they're heat treated a little bit softer, so they're easy to sharpen and they're tougher, so they don't get a lot of returns. You know, the factory doesn't like to get a lot of returns from broken knives. And also a very thin knife is more likely to flex than to break. But on the cheaper stainless steel knives, they were more likely to break. But I don't think that there was very much breakage at all on this knife. So in your opinion, this could have been a knife that was in Linda's house that somebody just grabbed out of her kitchen. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah, I think it was probably something like that. Which would mean not premeditated. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, they could have brought one of their own kitchen knives with them. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, but most kitchen knives don't have a hilt, which is what would protect your hand from sliding down the blade of a knife. That's very correct. And it would be pretty common to get a cut on your own hand if you stab someone and hit a bone. That's what I wanted to ask you. What do you think the chances are that Linda's killer injured themselves? I, I think they are pretty good odds that they injured themselves. And from the looks of it, Linda was fighting back, so she may have injured them herself. That's what I was going to ask you about, Jeff. Are there any indications just from looking at the wounds, in your opinion, that she was fighting back? What are some of the signs that you see of that? Yeah, The biggest ones I see that reflect her self-defense moves are on her arm, her right arm. She has slice wounds up on the upper arm and on the hand, especially on the hand. Now, it's kind of common sense to think that if someone's trying to stab you and you have a knife, you would cut the hand that they stick out at you. But that is also a technique in Filipino martial arts called defang the snake. And so it's not really a technique, it's a tactic. And what does that involve exactly? Well, there's a lot of techniques involved in that with capturing the arm and deflecting it and passing it by, but also cutting the arm as they stab Okay. You would avoid the stab and cut their arm. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, I know we can't know 100%, but what's your opinion on whether Linda's attacker was right-hand dominant versus left-hand? Is there anything in her injuries or the location of her injuries that give us an indication as to what hand they probably stabbed her with? I think that it was probably the right hand because most of the serious stabs are on her left side of the body. Mm. Oh, okay. Good observation. That's interesting. And then... The wounds where she was trying to stab them is where she got stabs and cuts on her right side of her body because that was what she was fighting with. I think she was right-handed. I don't know. I believe she was. Okay. So are you saying you think Linda may have armed herself during this? I think that she probably did. I think she probably got a knife from her own kitchen to hold this person off. Wow. Wow. That's something I really hadn't thought about. I think it is because if a person has a knife and they're attacking someone to kill them, the defensive person sticking their arm out isn't really that serious, you know? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't really require someone to cut the hand. But if they had a weapon, they would focus on the weapon and they would do what they could to disarm her first. They would have to disarm her before they could get close enough to make some of those stabs into her body. Sure. Yeah, and she does have some large gashes, I guess you could say, around her right wrist area and lower forearm. Right. She has some in the upper arm as well that were slashes. And, you know, a slash would be more likely as a person was defending themselves from a knife because it don't have to be as accurate as a stab. And so especially the ones on the hand are where they're trying to get rid of the knife that's in her hand. 
Okay. Jeff, you're saying knife, but she may have had some other type of weapon in her hand, too, that her attacker was trying to fend off. I guess it could be any weapon. Is that possible, too? It could have been. I mean, it wasn't likely to be a gun, but it could be a stick or something. Yeah, like a wooden object or something like that. So there's a number of possibilities that she may have armed herself with. Correct. But I don't think those are as serious as a knife. If you think about getting stabbed with a knife, it gives you a visceral feel rather than just getting hit with a stick. Sure. Right. Yeah, it's a very intimate action, actually, in some ways. I was just thinking, Jeff, like if somebody comes at you with a knife, you're going to try to arm yourself just as quickly as you can with anything around you. Like if there's a screwdriver or right, yeah, just anything. I'm sure you're right. If she armed herself, it probably was a knife. But I was just trying to thought process out what other possibilities there might be. Yeah, a screwdriver is just as dangerous as a knife and any other type of stabbing instruments. So there's no doubt in your mind that Linda put up some level of defense. Yeah, I think she definitely put up a pretty good defense. I think it was a very dynamic fight. Mm-hmm. And to do that effectively, you probably have to be vertical, right? Yes. She would need to be upright, not, you know, laying in a bed or laying on her back on the floor or something like that. Your opinion is that she had to have been upright for at least part of this? Yeah, I think so. She had to be upright and moving around. She's probably moving with her feet as well, not just standing in one place, mm-hmm. you know, and stabbing the person or stabbing at the person. Mm-hmm. And so when I put a sketch together, which I sent you guys and we'll publicize it probably with this episode, but I put a sketch together showing as best I could the locations of her injuries front and back. And she has injuries to both, although there's more to her front. Right. Which also I think indicates that she's putting up some kind of defense and facing her attacker. But something that really stuck out to me when I made that sketch is that the majority of the wounds to her front, particularly in her chest area and up to her neck, are horizontal, right? not vertical, like I would have expected to see. Right. Does that tell you anything about what went down? I think that could indicate some level of training. Oh. Because a person who has at least some training in the martial arts would know to turn their blade sideways, and they absolutely did that on the stabs on her right side. Really? Yeah. (laughs) So what's the advantage of turning the blade sideways? So you don't get it stuck in the ribs. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it will penetrate with much less resistance if it slides between the ribs rather than hit a rib Mm -hmm. and, you know, just get wedged in between the ribs. Wow. That's interesting. Okay, I'm going to get into the nitty-gritty here, but... So if she's upright and the person is holding the knife blade horizontally, is it more common to hold the knife in an overhand grip or an underhand grip? What's most effective or easiest? I think that the grip was like a grip that you would use to cut vegetables. Okay. You would call it like a hammer grip or a saber grip. Mm -hmm. And there's one injury on her chest that penetrates between the ribs and goes downwards which is awkward if a person is standing and you're stabbing someone in the upper chest like that. Just imagine holding your arm out and then pointing the knife downwards. It's super awkward. And just for our listeners, what Jeff is saying is that it's awkward, but one of the wounds indicates that it was an underhand grip. That's how the the attacker was holding the knife whenever the wound was delivered. Yes, and that would indicate that the person was taller or that that wound was after she had at least fallen to her knees. 
Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, holding your hand that way and pointing the blade down is super awkward. You probably wouldn't do that. But to hold it that way and push the blade downwards, it's a natural motion. Okay, and by the way, we're going to have to bring you on a live Zoom so that we can do uh, it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I, I understand what you're saying. I'm standing up walking around doing it in the air right now. But <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should have put a GoPro on your head or something. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that the wound that you're referring to was one of the four lethal ones. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because Linda did have, according to the coroner I spoke with, she had four wounds that without immediate medical attention, like her being right there in the ER, she probably would not survived any of these four wounds. Right. Yeah. And that's pretty significant. I mean, in our previous case, Debbie had one wound that we knew for sure was lethal. Right. The rest, she might have survived. You know, so to have four to me is pretty significant. Exactly. Yeah. It's like they knew what they were doing. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Jeff, I have a question for you. Okay. So and I know it's probably impossible to know exactly, but is there any indication of which wounds were delivered first, in your opinion, just looking at the autopsy pictures? Is there any way to know that? Well, I really think that the first wounds were on her arm and hand because I think that if she was armed, they would have had to get past her weapon to deliver the other wounds that were more fatal. And so I think those were the first ones. I think a couple of the other wounds, other than the one that we were talking about that had a downward with a weird hand position, I think those could have been in the next group of stabs. And then that last one was probably as she was at least down on her knees, if not farther down than that. Mm-hmm. So just so we're clear, Jeff, based on what you've seen, it is entirely possible that the person who attacked Linda was using a kitchen knife, maybe out of her kitchen, that the person who committed this crime did seem to possibly have some knowledge of how to use a knife and how to deliver lethal blows, and that there are clear indications that Linda fought her attacker off, possibly because she was armed herself. Yes, I agree to all of those completely. So what's your thought on the wounds to her back? I count basically four. Right. She does have a wound to the right side of her head, but the coroner felt that that was from blunt force trauma, not the knife. Yeah, okay. So if we remove that one, I see four on her backside. So how do you think the killer and Linda in this space transitioned from her being stabbed in the front to the back? I think those were likely delivered as she was trying to get away. I don't know where the fight started, but didn't you say that she ended up in the bedroom? Yes. And the fire started in the kitchen? That we don't know. Oh, okay. All right. There may have been multiple points of origin. Alan, our arson expert, does believe that if there was multiple fires set with an accelerant, at least one was started in the bedroom because... The master bed frame and that wall is more charred than other areas. Okay, yeah. But there could have been another one started in the kitchen or living room or elsewhere in the house. Right. Well, I really do think it was a a dynamic fight. They were on their feet. They were fighting. And it's likely that at some point she turned, she got cut and she turned to retreat a little bit. She may have received the wounds in the back then. Could she have incurred the wounds to the front and then realizes, probably subconsciously, she's in big trouble? Right. And so she turns her back, like you said, to retreat or try to run away, and the person is able to maybe 
push her down or something? Yeah, she might have tried to run away to get a door between her and the attacker. Mm -hmm. And he, she, whatever, I'm not sure about that, but was able to get some slash wounds in as she was getting away. Yeah. Have you ever analyzed a case of a stabbing victim where they were found completely nude? No. Because Linda was. I want to get your thoughts on it. She had no clothes on when found. And me and George keep going back and forth on what in the world does that mean? Was she asleep in bed? But then with all the defensive wounds, I don't know that she could have gotten out of bed and possibly armed herself. You know, it's maybe dark in the house. I just don't know what the chances are of being able to do that. But then I'm like, why is she completely nude and upright when this starts? That's a detail that we're definitely struggling with. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. Okay. But it's still instructive to know that you haven't worked a case where the victim was found completely nude after being stabbed. No, I haven't. Okay. Hmm. That's interesting, George. That is interesting. It's more rare than we thought, maybe. <laughs> to me, it's more indicative that she didn't have her clothes on because if they're going to set the house on fire and do all the other stuff, I don't know why they would take the time to take her clothes off. It would be easier just to mm -hmm. douse her body in some type of you know, accelerant and then just set her on fire than to spend your time pulling her clothes off and all that other stuff. So yeah, I'm beginning to wonder if our theory about was some type of a sex act going on and it just got out of control somehow. Yeah. So extreme, though. Like, what would happen to send a romantic partner, even a one-night stand, into such a rage? Right, you know. And put themselves, themselves really, at such risk of being discovered for this crime. Uh-huh. Like, have to be something super serious that went down. Yeah. Yeah. It would. Like to me, this feels much more rage over something else than something of a sexual nature. But that's just my take on it. Maybe Jen, somebody that she didn't have a problem not having clothes on, came over to her house because we know that several of the people we're talking about here, she'd been mm -hmm. nude around before. Maybe they just show up at her house. She gets into an argument with them. I don't know. Yeah. It's just weird. I don't know why they would take the time to take her clothes off and then just burn the place. You know what I mean? It's just like an extra step. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you think that even the clothes would work as a wick. You know, I think the chance of them disrobing her is probably fairly slim. Right. Yeah. We can't 100% rule that out, but like you said, it's just a whole other step in already a super risky encounter. Yeah. And the killer's already spending extra time on site having to find something to set a fire with, which could take 30 seconds or it could take five minutes, but right. it's still a huge extra risk. Yeah. Why not just run away? Yeah. <laughs> just grab the knife and run. Yeah. Yeah, because that's going to be... Bringing all the attention, but it could destroy evidence as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, we don't know the confrontation didn't happen in the bedroom. She might have been in bed. Somebody comes into her house. She wakes up and it's someone she knows and they get into a fight and they start screaming, yelling. Yeah. Going crazy. And so there's no time for her to put clothes on. And then the killer just walks in the kitchen, grabs a knife. Obviously, Linda following them because they're in her house. And then she picks up a knife or something else to try to defend herself. And this thing just boils out of control. Yeah, and it didn't necessarily start with anybody having a knife, like you said. It could have just started as a verbal argument and then completely escalated to where one or the other grabs a knife or both. Yeah, right. But again, to me, it feels different than a sexual encounter gone wrong. There's just something different about it. 
Yeah. You know, and there's definitely, there's no posing of her body. I'm just, again, spitballing now. Maybe they were having some type of sexual encounter and somebody does something they're not supposed to do and it turns into a fight and, you know, sex Mm -hmm. can cause people to go into an absolute rage. So, I don't know. Yeah. Right. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics. One natural conclusion that many people have come to is that Linda's murder was a crime of passion, meaning it was unplanned and resulted from a situation that quickly became heated. If Jeff's analysis is correct, then this was definitely a, a crime of passion right in the moment. Yeah, they're not prepared to set a fire. Right. Oh, one other thing, Jeff, you had mentioned to us, the small wound to Linda's sternum area and how you thought her sternum stopped the knife. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, I I think that stab wound to the sternum probably did stop the knife there, but didn't break it. Mm -hmm. I think the toughness comes from being so thin. Those thin knives are very flexible, so they can flex quite a bit before they break. Mm -hmm. And you had also mentioned that that might be the wound where the killer's hand got cut. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's a natural instinct that whenever you're hand slips on your knife to grasp it harder. And that just makes you cut your hand a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. Because I have actually done that myself. (laughs) Oh, yikes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the person, depending on how they're holding that knife, do you think it would have cut their fingers? Or do you think it would have cut their palm? Or is there any way to even know? I think most likely it would cut their fingers. Okay, so the crease of their fingers. Right. And when someone does that, is that an injury that scars over and you have that scar for life? Not necessarily. It might be a faint scar for a while, for a long time, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily for life. Okay. I actually have stab wounds and cut wounds all over me, so... (laughs) (laughs) Some of the worst ones, you know, I can... Jeff, you're the expert in knives. (laughs) I know. I know. Hey, this makes him more of an expert. He's actually got some blood in this game. (laughs) Exactly. I have experience in all these things. (laughs) And most of them were due to my own accidents, so... (laughs) So they might have had evidence of an injury for a while, but... Definitely. Possibly not now. And it would definitely make everything that you do harder to do for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, so it would be obvious for a couple of weeks that someone had an injury on their hand. And do you think they would have required medical attention? Not necessarily. They could be fixed with butterfly bandages and stuff like that. Okay. It could have took a couple of stitches to close them up, but... That's still going to be pretty obvious to anyone who's around this person for those couple of weeks. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So we've put this out before, but if anybody listening remembers somebody in the Port Orchard area having that type of injury in 2008, we would like to know about it. Right. Or if they happen to slice open the palm of their hand, same thing. We'd like to hear about that. Definitely. And then one other thing, in terms of the length of the knife blade, what are your thoughts? I think around four inches, 
Could be a little bit less, could be a little bit more. Some of the wounds in the softer tissues could have been done with a smaller knife. And if they've done with a, a lot of power, they can drive the knife deep into the soft tissue. Mm -hmm. But the ones around the, the ribs and stuff, they were probably in the four or five inch range. Okay. And then the width of the blade, what's your opinion on that? The width is hard to determine, but I would think somewhere in the one inch range as being how wide they were. Okay. It's clear Linda and her killer had a dynamic fight going on while she was being attacked. This is evidenced by the various locations and angles of her injuries. Also, most of the knife wounds are not symmetrical, as they would be if Linda was incapacitated and not moving while being stabbed. You can only go by stab wounds, and some of those stab wounds are wider than one inch, but that just means the knife moved on the way in or on the way out, you know, so it's tough to say. And if she's fighting back, that makes total sense. Right. I know that Linda was in the military, and if this was a friend of hers from the military, you might consider looking to see if anybody was ever stationed in, like, Southeast Asia. That's where a lot of these knife techniques come from. Okay. And they could have learned them there. I don't know how much you can tell about person's history, but I do know there are a lot of Eskrima and Kali practitioners out on the, the West Coast, and that all came from guys that were stationed over there in the 60s. Okay, interesting. If somebody studied martial arts, and one person that you're a suspect of, I would look just a little bit harder at the person who did study the martial arts. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I mean, this is why I love talking to you, because I had no idea that oh, all those horizontal wounds might mean that they have some training in this. And that makes total sense when you explained it. Right. Her last duty station was Diego Garcia, which is in the Indian Ocean, sort of on that side of the world. Right. Of Asian countries, but not right there. Right. So that's, that's the closest she got to that part of the world, as far as we know. You know, so many people who are in the military, they train in martial arts. I mean, that's super common, especially to have the connections between the Northwest and that part of Asia. Just another thing to consider. Exactly, yeah. That's actually a really good point that you brought up because I don't know that we never would have thought of that. Nope. Because the person's instinct, if they have a knife in their hand, is just to revert to training. Yep. Right. Even if it was years before, you know? Exactly. And even if it was just a short period of time of training, six months to a year, you would learn those techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that may help the investigating authority, because obviously they did investigation after the murder for a long time and like looked into all different people. And we don't know who all those people are, but this might help them <laughs> go back and look at those records of who they did investigate. And maybe there is somebody in there who had this kind of training. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. One other thing I just thought of, male versus female, any opinion on whether her attacker was a guy or a girl? Not really. I always lean towards a guy being an attacker. It's not necessarily true. And the fact that they did not overpower from the very beginning could lean towards someone more of equal size mm -hmm. to her than someone a lot bigger or stronger. Yeah, that's something I wondered about, too. Yeah. She was about five foot four and about 105 pounds. Oh, yeah. So she wasn't big. She's tiny. She was strong and scrappy from what we've been told. Yeah. Everybody said she would have stood a chance to fight off 
somebody in this situation, and obviously she did have a chance. Right. She's still not that big. Yeah. And she would likely know that she needed a weapon, too. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. So, okay, probably not like a six-foot-five bodybuilder. Correct. <laughs> Something lower than that. Okay. Probably. Yeah, and here's the thing. Somebody that big, like a man, I don't think that they would feel the need to grab a knife. You know what I mean? Right. Like if they want to beat her up and attack her, they're just going to attack her, you know? Right. And then, like, if they decided to kill her later, the weapon could be an afterthought. Yeah. Rather than the initial conflict. Jen, I wonder if there's any research been done on this, if there's any way to study it. What are the chances between a man and a woman going into a kitchen and grabbing a knife to attack someone? Good question. I mean, we know it's happened over and over again, but I don't know statistically in terms of gender what's more common. And I could be wrong about this. It seems like more something that a female would do than a male because I'm just sitting here thinking if I got into a fight with Linda and we're sitting there getting into a fight, I get so enraged that I can harm her or kill her. I'm just going to start beating her up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need a knife. She's five foot four, 105 pounds. I'm just going to hit her and hit her and just keep hitting her. Whereas if I'm a woman of the same stature or close, I probably would maybe go and get a weapon. I don't know. Just my thought. Like to give you a leg up? Yeah. Give you an advantage over the victim? Yeah. Yeah, because I don't know why a man would need a knife. Yeah. Unless it was premeditated. Yeah, I guess all assuming that that this was crime of passion, act of the moment type thing. But if that's the case, I don't know why a grown man would need to go and grab a knife. Yeah. Jeff, could this have been a pocket knife of some sort that if it was a male he already had on him? Well, like a normal pocket knife doesn't lock open. Those really don't lend themselves to good weapons except for slash attacks. They cannot be used for stabs other than very precise stabs in soft places. Okay. Uh, but like a hunting knife that locks open, it could be something like that, yes. Mm-hmm. But not likely, in your opinion. Not likely, no. And and even that, they don't have a guard. Generally, a hunting knife doesn't have a guard that will keep your hand from sliding up there. A folding hunting knife does not have a guard that will keep your hand from sliding up on the, on the blade whenever you stab into a bone. Yeah. Did you see any evidence in her wounds of any part of the blade edge being serrated? No, no. Okay, so a smooth edge, single blade. I do think, Jeff, if you're interested, we, we would love to do a live Zoom in the future. I know people would be so interested Okay. to hear from you. All right, no problem. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much again for taking time out of your weekend to connect with us and weigh in on yet another case, and we just appreciate you being a really, really important part of our team. I appreciate y'all letting me be a part of it. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Thank you. For listeners who would like to hear more from Jeff or ask him questions directly, George and I will be hosting a live Zoom with him on Tuesday, April 11th, starting at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. Please visit our Facebook group for Linda titled Unsolved Murder of Linda Malcolm for more information and to RSVP. I also want to remind listeners that George and I and several of Linda's siblings will be in Port Orchard at the end of April to commemorate the 15-year anniversary of Linda's death. We will be hosting several in-person events that weekend, which are open to the public. Details will be posted in our Facebook group. 
next time on Break the Case. The inside of this house is extremely hot, but nothing burnt on the roof. That means whatever was inside of here burnt extremely hot and extremely fast. It's almost like somebody had five gallons of gas and just started throwing it up against the wall and away you go. In my opinion, something seeped underneath the building and started to burn. And you can see in that photo, the fire department sprayed foam there. So I don't know if there was an accelerant on the ground that seeped out, but it looks like something ran under the wall and started to burn because otherwise it should burn straight up. I think it was all spontaneous. I mean, I think somebody was really, really mad. I think they might have poured fuel out to the front door and lit it from right there and just left it open. The fire department, I've got to give them credit. They've done an awesome job putting this thing out because her body wasn't burnt as bad as what I've seen. The only reason I could think of that they would target the car is they get their own blood in the car and they feel like, okay, well, I gotta destroy that too, but I'm with you. That's a big extra level of risk. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tannis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.